Our text this morning will be Romans 9, verses 6 through 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. As strange as it sounds, Christianity stands or falls upon a right reading of the Old Testament. From Matthew to Revelation, the New Testament claims on virtually every page that what has happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. And so if Jesus was not who he said he was, if he was not the Messiah that God promised in the Old Testament, then that would mean he was deluded and wrong, and that would mean that the apostles had been deceived or were deceivers or both. Just as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there's no resurrection, the whole gospel falls apart. So the New Testament tells us that if Jesus is not the promised Messiah of Israel, then the whole story of the Bible falls apart. And that is why we should not be surprised that of all the things that Jesus could have done and could have said between his resurrection and ascension when he had those 40 days that he spent with his disciples. Two things that the New Testament authors make very clear that Jesus spent his time doing in that interval were one, making really clear to his disciples that he had physically, bodily risen from the dead. He said, see my hands and my feet, touch my side, here, I'm going to eat some fish in front of you. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I have really, truly risen from the dead. He wanted them to be absolutely sure that he had been bodily raised from the dead. And the second thing he did was he spent time teaching his disciples, making sure that they understood that what had happened to him fulfilled all that was written in the Old Testament. For example, in Luke 24... Beginning in verse 47, uh, Jesus, uh, or excuse me, verse uh, 27, I believe it is. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, or it tells us about what Jesus was doing. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then it says a few verses later, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, I emphasize that point that it's essential that we read the Old Testament correctly, that we see it as fulfilled in Jesus, because that is what the whole book of Romans is about. In the very first line of Romans, as Paul introduces himself at the beginning of his letter, he says about himself that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And near the end of the letter, in chapter 15, verse 8, Paul says, I tell you 
that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And this is especially true in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, which is the section that we have begun working through uh, now. One author says about Romans 9 to 11, that it is probably the single most important passage in the New Testament about how early Christians put their Bibles together. If you want to know how the early church read the Old Testament, in other words, there's no better place to go than Romans 9 to 11. That same author points out that more than 30 verses from the Old Testament are quoted in these three chapters, Romans 9 and 10 and 11. So that gets me excited. I love learning and seeing how the whole Bible was put together. And so that's part of what I'm excited about in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. I don't know what you think of primarily when you think of Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11, but I want you to think this way. That as we study these chapters, that this is our opportunity to essentially sit down with the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, would you teach me how to understand the Old Testament? Would you teach me what that story about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that the story about the Exodus and Moses and Pharaoh, would you teach me about the promises God made to Israel? Would you help me understand what all that means and what all that has to do with me and how that applies to what God is doing in the world right now? Would you help me put all this together? That's what Paul is doing for us in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. So let me read for us our, our passage. Hopefully you'll see now what I'm talking about when I read verses 6 through Nine, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, that first line of verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. If you make notes or underline it all in your Bible, I encourage you to mark that sentence. Because that sentence is the point of all of Romans 9 and 10 And 11. The point of all three of those chapters is that the Word of God has not failed. God's promises have not been made void. Romans 9 to 11 is not ultimately about the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God, although that is important in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 to 11 is not ultimately about justification and how we are saved and the reason we do missions, although that is important in chapter 10. Romans 9 to 11 is not ultimately about the way that all Israel will be saved at the end, although that is what is really important in Romans chapter 11. But all of these chapters are ultimately about and mainly about the truth that God has and will continue to keep his promises. That's what the whole thing is about. And the reason why that's so important 
is because of what Paul has said at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Why raise this question at all? Why do we need to be told that God's word has not failed? The reason is because Romans chapter 8 ended with some of the greatest, grandest, most exalted promises that we find anywhere in Scripture. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. No one can separate us from His love. But somebody might say, well, didn't we think those things were true of Israel? Didn't God make some pretty astounding promises to Israel? Didn't God promise that He would bless them? Weren't they His chosen people? Didn't He love them? But Paul, you just said at the beginning of chapter 9 that you're grieved and broken hearted because most of the people of Israel didn't believe in the Messiah when He came. They're not receiving and enjoying those great promises. So it doesn't look like God has kept His promises to Israel. And if He hasn't kept His promises to Israel, how can we be sure that God will keep His promises to us? You see, the fact that the nation of Israel, that the Jews as a people still exist, is on the one hand a strong apologetic argument that the God of Israel is the one true and living God. Because if you think about all the things that the Jewish people have gone through, all the people who have persecuted them, oppressed them, all the wars that have taken place on their land, all the people who have tried to wipe them out, and of all the nations in the Old Testament that don't exist anymore, the fact that the Jews still exist uh, is a strong uh, argument that their God is the real God. But at the same time, the fact that most of the Jews in Jesus' day and all the way up to our day do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah is a difficulty that Christians have to explain. It is an obstacle that Paul had to help people understand. If Jesus is really the Messiah, then why did most of the Jews reject him? If God really keeps his promises, then what's going on with Israel right now? That's what these chapters are about. To help us understand how so many of the Jews can fail to believe in Jesus, and yet God can still be faithful to Israel, and therefore we can count on him to be faithful to us as well. So how does Paul explain that for us? How does this work? Look at the second part of verse 6. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's that's his fundamental answer to the question. How can can God's promises, how can God's word not have failed if so many of the Jews do not believe? Paul's answer is, well, not all Israel is Israel. Now that might sound at first like a clever loophole or something that Paul has come up with to get out of a difficulty. But it's not. It is actually a principle, a truth that is taught very clearly in the Old Testament as Paul is about to show us. That not everyone who is physically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, not all who are descended from Israel truly belong to Israel. 
And not all who are descended from Abraham are therefore heirs of the promise and children of God. Now, where does he get that from? On, on what basis does he say that? In the middle of the end of verse 7, he quotes a statement from Genesis 21 that says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, by itself, that may not mean a whole lot to you. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But oftentimes, when Paul or anybody else in the New Testament quotes a verse from the Old Testament, they not only expect us to recognize the quotation, they expect us to know where it comes from and sort of the rest of the story. And we do this in our lives. If you have, I don't know, movies or books or you know, events from your family's history where certain quotes, certain moments uh, sort of live on you know, past, past the initial moment, and you can just say a line right, from maybe a, a, a famous uh, you know, Thanksgiving fiasco in your family or something. You, you can just say a line... And it's not just the line that you're calling to everybody's mind, but the whole event, right? This is what Paul is doing. So when he quotes this line, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he's calling to mind this whole story that I'm sure you remember about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. Remember that God promised Abraham and Sarah that he would give them numerous offspring. And in particular, he promised that he would give them a son. But the years were dragging on and and Abraham and Sarah weren't getting any younger. And God's promises weren't coming to pass. And so Sarah said, I know what let's do. I'll give you my servant Hagar as a wife and you can have a child through her. And that way we'll have the son that God promised. Well, Abraham went along with that idea, bad as it was, and he had a son with Hagar named Ishmael. So Ishmael is a child of Abraham. He's an offspring of Abraham. Is he going to inherit the promises? No. No. God says to uh, Abraham, essentially, that's not the son I was talking about. Ishmael is not the son that I promised you, and he is not going to inherit the promises. But instead, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. He said to Abraham, you're going to have a son with Sarah about this time next year. Paul quotes that passage as well at the end of verse 9. At the promise, when God said the promise is about to happen now, a year from now, you're going to have a son through Uh, Sarah, and you're going to name him Isaac. And Isaac is going to be the son who inherits the promise. Ishmael gets sent away, and Isaac is the promised son, and the promises God made to Abraham, they pass on to Isaac, and then they're passed on from Isaac to Jacob, and so on. So that's the way that uh, Paul says it worked for Abraham in the Old Testament, and that's the way it still works Now, that's why he explains this in verse 8. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, when he says children of the flesh there, sometimes when Paul uses the word flesh, he means it as like our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. 
But sometimes he means it just as like what's natural, your physical body. That's how he's using it here. Right? The children of the flesh, the example, uh, the main example from the Old Testament is Ishmael. The children of the flesh, they are not the children of God. They are not the heirs of the promises. Right? So Ishmael was born in the natural, physical way. Right? It was outside of marriage, shouldn't have happened that way, but there was nothing supernatural about Ishmael being born. But there was something supernatural about Isaac being born. That's why the story of Abraham and Sarah drags out so long in the book of Genesis. We're told at the very beginning that Sarah is barren and that Abraham is about 75 years old. But the story goes on year after year after year until uh, Sarah is well beyond childbearing years and Abraham is about 100 years old. And that is when God finally gives them the son that he had promised. Why did he wait so long? He waited so long so that it would be evident to everyone that Isaac was born by God's power and God's promise and not by any natural means. He was born according to the promise, right? So when he says, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, what he's saying is, not everyone who was born from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not everybody who is ethnically a Jew, in other words, is automatically a child of God, a child of the promise, but that inside Abraham's family, there are people, individuals, children, who have been counted as Abraham's offspring, who have been counted as his children. Paul will talk about this later in chapter 11 as those who are part of the remnant, the sort of Israel inside of Israel, those who believe. And we see evidence of this in the New Testament, even uh, around the birth of Jesus, that there are some in Israel who, when they hear about Jesus' birth, they want to get rid of him. But there are some in Israel who, when they hear about Jesus' birth, they want to worship him. They want to see him. What makes the difference? Some of them are children of promise, and some of them are just children of the flesh. Some of them are just physically descended from Abraham, but some of them are the children of God. So that's not, Paul's saying, that's not something new. That's something that you can learn from reading the Old Testament. Right? Those stories in the Old Testament, in other words, they're not just sort of fun stories to tell your children, although you should tell them to your children. Right? They are stories that teach doctrine, too. If you read the story of Abraham carefully and wisely and discerningly, you learn about how God saves, and you learn about the fact that being a Jew is not enough to be part of God's people. Being descended from Abraham is not enough to be counted as a child of God. Right? The stories are there not only to entertain, but also to instruct and to teach. It also teaches us that belonging to a certain family or nation did not automatically make you an heir of God's promises then, and it does not automatically make you an heir of God's promises now. 
You can be from a really godly family with a rich spiritual heritage and not be a Christian. You can turn your back on it. Or you can assume that you're, you don't need any kind of special salvation because you're okay already as you are. You, you, after all, you come from this great family. Now, it wasn't enough to be descended from Abraham. It was not enough to be a member of the Jewish people. And there's no other family or nation that automatically qualifies you as being a part of the family of God. That's just not how it works. So how does it work? Well, Isaac is the Old Testament example of how God saves now in the New Testament as well. And we see this even more clearly in Galatians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to point you to a few verses. What Paul is saying here, uh, he teases out a little bit further in, in Galatians 4, and he'll tease it out more uh, later in, in, uh, in chapter 9 and 10 and 11. But in Galatians chapter 4, he says something very similar to what he's saying here. He says, but the son of the slave, talking about the same story, Hagar, the slave woman, Sarah, Abraham's wife, whatever. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, that's basically the same thing he said here. But then he takes it one step further there, and he says, talking to Gentile believers in Galatia, talking to you and me, he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Paul says, you're like Isaac. You're a child of promise. How does that work? He says, but just as at that time, the time of Abraham, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So Paul says, if you look at Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael had natural physical descent from Abraham, but he was not an heir of the promise. Isaac was born by the promise, by the power of God, by supernatural intervention, and he was given the promises of God. And what Paul is saying is, in Galatians chapter 4, as offensive as this would have been to Jews in Paul's day, Paul says, those Jews who don't believe in the Messiah, they're like Ishmael. They have physical descent from Abraham, but they are not receiving the promises of God. They're children of the flesh. But Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they are children of promise, just like Isaac. And he even says Isaac was born according to the Spirit. What does that make you think of? Jesus said to Nicodemus, a Jew, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. What do you mean I have to be born again? Nicodemus was not only a Jew, he was the teacher of Israel. He was a wise and learned man in the scriptures. What do you mean he had to be born again? What I mean, Nicodemus, is it's not good enough to have a genealogy going back to Abraham. That wasn't good enough for Ishmael. You have to be born according to the promise. You have to be born according to the Spirit. That's how Isaac was born. And that's how you must be born. That's how every believer has been born. We've been 
born again by the work of the Spirit. And so Paul says, if you read the Old Testament correctly, you will see that God has not abandoned His people. He has not forsaken His promises. He has not failed to do what He said He would do. But He is acting now as He has always acted all the way back to the time of Abraham. And not everybody who comes from Abraham is a recipient of God's promises. God's never done it that way. He's not doing it that way now. For many of the Jews to reject the Messiah and not to believe in Jesus does not believe that God has failed to keep His promises. It just means that He has continued to call the children of promise His children and not the children of the flesh. What makes it possible for us to be counted as sons is the great act of redemption that we are about to remember as we take the Lord's Supper. How is it that we have become children of God? How is it that we are children of promise? How is it that we get to be children of the Spirit, born again by the Spirit? All of that was made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. Because we are now God's covenant people because Jesus purchased the new covenant for us with his blood. Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and said, uh, speaking for the Lord, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray.